Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the word, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your goodness to us, that you have given us all that we need for our spiritual life, all that we need for our salvation, all that we need for taking care of uh, the details of life so that we can fulfill your plan for our lives. Father, we know that you uh, always give us that which we need to sustain us to accomplish that which you have uh, determined for us to do. Father, we pray that you would uh, give us the concentration this evening to study your word, that as we study through these panoramas of history, that we might have the uh, concentration to learn these things, that we might be able to uh, assimilate the, the key points so that we can be encouraged, as that is its ultimate purpose, to encourage us and strengthen us uh, in t- times of chaos that you are still in control and that even though things may be falling apart around us, that nevertheless you have a plan and a purpose and that you are working that out in history. So we pray that you would help us to understand these things tonight in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8 tonight. Now the reason we've taken this side, <clears throat> sort of sidetrack through Daniel, is because uh, we got into our, the 13th chapter of Revelation, the 13th chapter of Revelation and the 17th chapter of Revelation, and when we get to chapter 17, I'm not going to go back through all of this again. So we're really laying a lot of groundwork and covering a lot of material that is thematic in 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 as we're in the latter part of the tribulation period. And the emphasis in these chapters is on key event, key people key events in the last half of the tribulation period, the last three-and-a-half-year period. And this is when the Antichrist has uh, concentrated his power. He has secured his position. He has uh, defiled the temple in Jerusalem where he claims to be God and requ- is requiring the worship and the full devotion 
and loyalty of every human being on the planet. And as we'll see, that means that they won't even be able to buy or sell or do anything, conduct any kind of business, work, collect Social Security, unemployment, or anything else, unless they swear a religious kind of obedience to the Antichrist. So since the Antichrist and then the false prophet are the focal, uh, the focus of the 13th chapter, I'm taking the time to go back and do an inductive study on the Antichrist. And Sunday morning I talked about the importance of doing an inductive Bible study. Now that idea has been popularized a little bit by um, <clears throat> a precept ministry. What's her name? Uh, Kay Arthur and her precept ministry, and she probably got the idea from Howard Hendricks at Dallas Seminary back years ago when she started that uh, that ministry, but it's it wasn't new with her, and it is the foundation of Bible study. I remember back when I first read through uh, Lewis Berry Chafer's Systematic Theology, and he was talking about how theology was the uh, king of the sciences, and it's not because it's a science in the way biology and mathematics are science, but it is based on the study of the Bible, and hence your development of theology, is based on uh, a scientific approach to knowledge, where you examine your data, whatever that may be in geology, it's rocks, in biology, it's life cells, things that are living, botany, it's plants, with in theology, in the Bible, it's what is revealed in God's Word in biblical theology. And so you have all of this data that involves everything from the meaning of words to grammar, syntax of, uh, of language and construction, all of these things that are the, the basis for our study. And so years and years and years go by, centuries, and we study the Word of God and observe what is said there. And that gives us our database. And then from the database, scholars come to conclusions about what the Bible teaches about various topics, such as what does the Bible say about itself? What does the Bible say about the, its own authority? What does the Bible say about God? What does the Bible say about the persons in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit? And so, but you don't start with what does the Bible say about these things and then just teach the 15 points on the Trinity, you have to go through an in-depth analysis of all the data that is in the Scripture related to uh, each person in the Trinity and what the Bible says about the unity of God, what the Bible says about the distinct persons in the Godhead. And then as you look at all that data, you put it together and then you begin to draw conclusions, but then you have to go back and test those conclusions against the data again. And so there's this constant uh, cycle of going back and forth between the information that's in the Scripture and the conclusions that you're drawing so that you create what some people have called a, a spiral that takes you closer and closer to uh, to complete knowledge of Scripture, and this has taken now 20 centuries in the church age where people have been studying the Scriptures, and they had to start in the early part of the uh, church age just answering the question of who is Jesus? Is he God or not? And once they came to a conclusion that, yes, he's God, 
Then the next question is, okay, how does Jesus relate to God the Father? We say we believe in one God, but if Jesus is God and the Father's God, it seems like we have two gods, but we're supposed to only have one God, so how does that fit? And then you have the Holy Spirit, so how does that go together? And then once they were able to clearly uh, define and articulate the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one in essence and three in person, then you had to try to explain what does the Bible teach about the person of Christ. Is he Was he created by God sometime in eternity past, which was the Arian position? Was he created in time, uh, which is uh, the position of those who uh, believe God, uh, believe Jesus is just a man that somehow was given deity later on? Uh, or is Jesus eternally God? Is he fully and equally God? And that is consistent with the teaching of Scripture. So Jesus is fully God. He's infinite. He's eternal. But in his humanity, he, he's finite. He took on that humanity, but it is joined together with his deity, and it will be there for, human, for, for eternity. And then once you come to an understanding of the what is called the hypostatic union, the God-man, then the next question is, to really work through his salvation. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't have a somewhat uh, <clears throat> sort of un, unexamined or naive or superficial understanding of these things already, but they hadn't really analyzed them, and it took centuries to be able to articulate these things. And so uh, after the 5th century, 6th century A.D., they spent another really a thousand years trying to figure out the nature of man. And during that period, you had all kinds of problems because of the Roman Catholic Church, their uh, allegorical interpretation of Scripture, and it really set Christianity off in a, uh <clears throat> errant position in the wrong direction. And so it took another thousand years before that got straightened out, both in terms of the authority in the church, because the, the canon really didn't get settled until the Reformation. And then you had to deal with the authority of the church as opposed to the authority of the Bible. And that was part of what was the problem in the Reformation. And then also you had to get away from the works uh, theology, the work salvation that had been taught uh, in the Roman Catholic Church to understand that salvation is a free gift from God. So down through the centuries, you work your way through the authority issue of the Bible, the person of God, the Trinity, the essence of God, the deity of Christ, deity of the Holy Spirit, the nature of man, the nature of sin, the nature of salvation, and you work through all the different branches of theology, and these are the broad topics. But within each of these topics, there's there's hundreds of secondary and tertiary topics, second, third level uh, studies, and and the implications of these things. And the last topic that really began to be analyzed in depth is the study of prophecy, the study of future things called eschatology, from the uh, Greek word eschatos, meaning last. So it's the study of the last things. And there's an incredible amount of material in the Scripture to pull together, to assimilate in the study of prophecy, because about uh, 
28% of the Bible is still unfulfilled prophecy. And that's a tremendous amount of information and a tremendous amount of data to really sift through and assimilate when you, when you uh, have as much uh, difficulty in these areas as people do. Because it's I believe that eschatology or the study of the last is the ultimate in the study of Scripture because if you don't get it right at the, at the basic level of interpretation, it's going to... You know, it's going to affect everything all the way up the pyramid. If you don't get it right in your understanding of God, your understanding of Jesus, then it's also going to have tremendous implications on where you go from there. So before you can really start to study prophecy and begin to understand these things, you have to have a firm grasp on God's plan. You have to have a firm grasp on dispensations. You have to have a firm grasp on uh, the whole, all the principles of interpretation, hermeneutics. You have to have a firm grasp on Israel and the distinction between Israel and the church. And if those things aren't in place, you can't, you, you won't even come up with uh, the doctrines like the rapture for existence, which is why the rapture isn't systematized and articulated until uh, the 18, late 1820s. And uh, it's uh, my friend Tommy's working on his doctoral dissertation for the University of Wales right now and dealing with aspects of Darby's theology and called me all excited the other night because he's got some found some really solid evidence that Darby was, uh, had come to an understanding of the pre-tribulation rapture as early as 1827 which means that all these people who say that he got it from uh, Margaret MacDonald, who was a uh, kind of a crazy young lady who was part of Edward Irving. He was an pr- early proto-charismatic type in, in England. And others, you know, people who just don't like dispensationalists with pre-trib rapture, and they come up with all this stuff to say that Darby stole it from somebody who, whose reputation is somewhat sullied and all this kind of thing. Well, if he got... If he was articulating it as early as 1827, then that's a long time before any of these other people were uh, even on the scene or involved with him. He just came to those conclusions because he was studying the Bible, because he had these other building blocks in place so that now he could understand these things. And once you believe in a futurist interpretation of, of Revelation and Daniel, once you believe in a distinction between Israel and the church, once you believe in a future literal thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, once you put these things together, then and only when those things are in place are you ever going to think in terms of a future tribulation and then the question, what is the relationship of the church to that future tribulation? And then you'll come to a conclusion on a, on a pre-tribulation rapture. And so that is why it's so important to study Daniel and Revelation. Revelation pulls all these threads together, but sometimes we really do have to go back to the beginning of these threads, and the book that has the most information on that is in Daniel. And so as we look at this whole study on the Antichrist and the kingdom that the Antichrist personifies that comes back into existence at the end time. Uh, we have to, we saw that it's covered here in Revelation 13.1, but to understand that we have to go back to Daniel chapter 7, which we've done for the last several lessons analyzing these animals that come out of 
this dream that Daniel has, the, uh, li- the lion with the wings of eagles representing the Babylonian kingdom and the lopsided bear with the three ribs representing the uh, Medo-Persian empire, the four-winged, four-headed leopard that represents the Greek empire, and the then this indescribable beast with the ten horns that represents the uh, Roman Empire and its final manifestation at the end of history before the kingdom of God is established. And as we've seen, this is the same portrayal of history that was uh, depicted in the great image that uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream in Daniel chapter 2, that the head of gold was Babylon, the chest of silver was uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, the uh, waist area of bronze was the Greek Empire, the iron of the legs was Rome, and then the clay and iron at the feet is the future revived uh, Roman Empire. So we've laid all of that out as we've gone through Daniel 7, and the thing that we need, one of the things we need to remember is that the this last empire, that fourth empire, ends by the coming of the Son of Man, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He des- He's the one who destroys the kingdom of man, its final manifestation, and establishes his kingdom, which means that that's never happened in history before. So that has to be future. And that final manifestation of the fourth kingdom, even though Rome existed and dominated history some uh, 2,000 years ago, and it passed off the scene, the western branch passed off the scene in the, uh, in the 5th century, and the uh, eastern branch, the Byzantine Empire passed off the scene in the 16th century. Nevertheless, the Bible says this is the empire that comes back into existence in a final form, and this is the empire that that will uh, manifest all the characteristics of rebellious mankind. And so in Daniel 7, we saw that the final form of the empire is represented by this uh, beast that has ten horns and that... After those ten horns come together in the final form of that kingdom that is the Roman kingdom, that an eleventh horn is going to come up, which is a little called a little horn, and this little horn uh, is described in verses 7 and 8 of Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 7. Let me just read those for you to review this. Daniel said, after this in the night visions, and uh, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now, there's a gap there because its initial form didn't have ten separate kingdoms. So we, it moves in, the, in, in that verse from its original appearance to its final form as a, having these ten nations, these ten horns represent ten kingdoms. 
And they've come together, so that hasn't happened in history yet. We don't see a ten-nation form. The last lesson, I went through a study, showed you a lot of things that are going on in the uh, European Union, and we see that it's just like all the other kingdoms of man. There are these anti-God, pro-human attempts to try to resolve man's problems uh, by, by government. And that is the lie of the devil, that government is designed to solve man's problem. According to Scripture, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, which we'll be studying when I get back from vacation on Sunday morning, the role of government is to restrain evil. The role of the government is to um, destroy evil, to protect people from criminality, and to protect the nation from foreign enemies. It is not the role of the government to provide health care. It is not the role of the government to provide happiness for people. It is the role of the government to protect people from criminals and from foreign enemies so that they can utilize their own ingenuity, their own effort, their own responsibility, their own decision-making capabilities to make life whatever they want it to be. And if they uh, don't do well, then it's not the government's job to come in and to steal through taxation from people who have worked hard, risked a lot, and uh, gained a lot to take it from them and to give it to people who haven't just so everybody can be the same. People are not the same. They are to be treated the same before in law, but they are not inherently the same. We all have different IQs. We all have different talents, different abilities, different uh, <clears throat> ways in which we make decisions. And so we are to be in a situation where we can make of life what we want it to be, not uh, to be restrained in any way by government. And that was what the founding fathers understood is freedom meant freedom from government involvement, government interference uh, in life. Now, what happens under the Antichrist is just the opposite. Government becomes the be-all and end-all by the Antichrist kingdom, that it is the government, it is this unified kingdom that is going to create the ultimate nanny state. And uh, we're already seeing examples of that now, but this is just foreshadowing of the way it's going to be, and it's been that way before. One of the things we ought to understand from all of this as we study history and we get into a lot of history in, in the eighth chapter of Daniel, is Americans are so ignorant of history that I find that uh, so many Christians today look around the scene of what's happening in the world, the move towards globalization, uh, economic uh, collapse that's occurred during the last year or so, and they think, look, this is so horrible. No, it's really not. When you go back and you have a real a tr- accurate understanding of history, the 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 uh, unrealistic bubble has been the last two or three hundred years. That has been the exception, not the norm in history. Go back and you look at how uh, the kingdoms, the monarchies of Europe ran things through the latter part of the Middle Ages and how they dominated every, everything and through government control uh, kept everybody uh, pretty poor and pretty much under their authority. You go back before that when, especially in Europe, there really wasn't that much uh, government control in the early Middle Ages, and you just, you know, life was extremely tough uh, and extremely rugged. So we have had tremendous blessing, especially in the United States and those nations influenced by the rich Protestant 
biblical heritage that came out of Britain following the Reformation, that we have been blessed in so many ways, tremendous opportunity, tremendous prosperity. And it, this is, but this is an aberration in history. And most people who have lived in human history have had horrible, horrible lives, horrible existence, extreme poverty, slavery dominated by uh, tyrannical governments, and we have been blessed, but we've, we've lost that. We, we've become spoiled as Americans and as evangelicals in America, as Christians in America. We've become spoiled into thinking that somehow uh, the wonderful blessings that we have are somehow normative, and they're not. They're abnormal. They're the result of a, of a tremendous, unique uh, coalescence of Factors that occurred in the 1700s, the 1600s in England, 1700s in the United States that brought about the founding and establishment of this country under the Constitution. We celebrate this week our uh, anniversary with the 4th of July, the anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And it is um, that document that stood as a declaration of the uh, colonists here that they were not to be dominated by an overbearing uh, government because people had the right to live their lives as they saw fit without fear of government intrusion and the government finding out everything that they could about everybody and dictating how they, how they uh, carried out every detail of their life. So when this <clears throat> final form of the uh, fourth kingdom develops, it is going to be an extremely dominant, uh, overpowering uh, form of tyrannical oppression. And it's exemplified in this one person who thinks he can control it all. In verse 8 of chapter 7, says, I was considering the horns, and there's another horn, a little one, coming up among them. So first you have the ten nations come together in, in that form, and then after that, the little horn comes up, uh, before whom three of the first horns are plucked out by their roots, and there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man. That means he's just a picture of the fact that he thinks his knowledge is pure human viewpoint. Uh, eyes often reflect something about knowledge. Scripture says the eyes of the Lord go to and fro about the whole earth. That talks about his knowledge. And <clears throat> so eyes here represents knowledge and that the Antichrist is has the eyes of a man, so he thinks in pure human viewpoint, and he's arrogant. Well, in the next chapter, we're going to see a further development of two of these kingdoms. Let me go back here. The, we're going to look at the, in chapter 8, looks at the second kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, and the third kingdom, the kingdom of Greece. And the reason is, is that God is going to zero in on events that will have a closer fulfillment for Israel than the events of this fourth kingdom. That's distant fulfillment, especially uh, the final form. But in order to teach Israel and us lessons about this final form of the kingdom, God in his sovereignty is going to zero in on these two kingdoms, the Medo-Persian kingdom and the Greek empire, and he's going to specifically focus in on one king that comes out of the Greek empire, and he's going to, of all the kings that have lived throughout all of history, 
You can think of uh, any evil king you want to, any evil ruler from Hitler to Saddam Hussein to any of the Tsars of Russia to whomever your favorite evil person is. And God chose this one guy as the closest picture of what the Antichrist would be like. And so when we study this, we're going to see some things about evil because what you and I have been trained by our culture to think of as evil as somebody who looks like an Adolf Hitler, somebody who does the kinds of things of a Ayatollah Khomeini or an Ahmadinejad or Saddam Hussein. And uh, while the uh, while Antiochus Epiphanes did those kinds of things, he also shows the really attractive side of evil that there is a beautiful front that Satan puts on evil so that the kind of people that he he uh, puts out in front are people who have attractive personalities. They are uh, brilliant. They are capable. They are the kind of people that most people who think according to the, the thinking of the world want to be around. And you see that again and again in world leaders that, that people don't see past the facade of attractiveness, of beauty, of personality, of uh, intelligence, or whatever those superficial surface abilities are, and that masks the evil that dominates their soul. And so God is going to pick out this one individual in history who is going to be the picture, God's chosen picture of what the Antichrist would be like. And his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. He was Antiochus IV, the king of the Seleucid, uh, king of the Seleucid Empire. So we, I've developed a little chart here to compare and contrast the little horn in Daniel 7, who depicts the Antichrist, and the little horn in Daniel chapter 8, because they, there's a similarity there because they're both represented by, by little horns, but they represent two different people. Now, let me tell you a little bit about why this is important. Somewhere along the line in the last, <clears throat> last part of the, the last century, I haven't run into this before, there has developed the, the theory that is gaining some traction that the Antichrist is a Syrian in his uh, in his origin, he's called the Assyrian Antichrist. Comes out of a reference to the Assyrian, the term the Assyrian in uh, Micah chapter five, right after the reference of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. But I believe the term there isn't referring to an individual, but to the Assyrian nation, and for, uh, for other reasons. But what go- also goes along with this is the old territory, or the territory of the old Assyrian empires in northern Iraq modern Syria and parts of Turkey there in uh, Kurdistan where the Kurds are there in that area where Iran and Iraq and Turkey all come together. And that, therefore, this the Antichrist is going to come out of this area that, of course, today is dominated by Islam. And so the future Antichrist is going to be an Islamic Antichrist. And see, the thing is, when you start getting people, one person here, one person there, come out and teach something like this, you go, oh, well, that's interesting, but that theory is going to kind of die out. But then what happens is it starts getting a little traction with some people. And the next thing you know, 
it's there's five or six books published on it, and some of the people promoting it have a national audience, national exposure, and you start getting questions from people saying, well, why can't the Antichrist come out of that part of the old Roman Empire? And what is the, especially today with the rise of the uh, evil Islamic fascism and Islamic uh, terrorism, why is it, and especially since Islam is such a factor in the whole uh, all of the <clears throat> uh, unsettledness and violence in the Middle East, what is the role of Islam in prophecy and in the future? And Walid Shubat, and there's a, a half a dozen other uh, Muslim background Christians. These are people who have come out of the Middle East. So when they read in the Bible that pr- prophetic uh, battles and prophetic uh, events occur in countries like Libya, Egypt, Syria, Assyria, Turkey, Iraq, Iran, Israel. That's their neighborhood. That's where they grew up. That's as familiar to them in, in terminology as if we were talking about Austin and Dallas and uh, we were talking about Shreveport and uh, Natchitoches, Louisiana, and some of those places you all don't know how to spell over there. And uh, But that's as familiar to us as these other places are to them. So when they start reading them in the Bible, they start doing a form of what I refer to as newspaper exegesis. It's familiar to them. They have some working knowledge of Hebrew because they've grown up around Israel. Arabic is their native language, which is very close to Hebrew. And so without going through the disciplines of word studies and theology in this, they go with what I call sort of a surface knee-jerk reaction that when they read in the Bible uh, terms that are in their neighborhood, they immediately think that, uh, think in terms of the fact that uh, all these countries are Muslim, so this must be a Muslim confederacy. And yet there's, it, it just, it just doesn't work. So, but this is really gaining traction, this whole idea of a Muslim antichrist. And, Part of it is based on an uh, uh, interpretive problem in Daniel 8, and that is that it looks at all of Daniel 8, or part of Daniel 8 as historic, and the last part as future. But all of Daniel 8 is historic. It was all addressed to uh, Antiochus, about Antiochus Epiphanes, and it is used as a type or picture of the Antichrist. There is nothing that I have found yet, and I've been doing a lot of study of this. It was good that I was uh, sick last week and couldn't make it. It gave me more time to study through these issues because there's a lot that's being put out on this right now but <clears throat> and a lot to assimilate because it pulls together just as I start off in my introduction saying there's just this host of, of, of thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of data from the scripture, from all these Old Testament prophetic books, New Testament books that are being uh, picked up, put together in new ways by different people. And you really have to know the context of every one of these citations. And you have to go and look at those because they're, they're, there's always people who are going to have a fresh look at something in Scripture and come up with a new insight that's valid. And so you can't just dismiss something out of hand because nobody ever really saw it that way. Schofield didn't see it that way or Chafer didn't see it that way. 
somebody else, uh, Hal Lindsey, didn't see it that way. Uh, it is possible, but you have to really look at these things. So uh, this is part of why I'm taking a little more time on this than I had originally intended. So let's look at the contrast here between uh, the horns and Daniel 7, the little horn in Daniel 7, the little horn in Daniel uh, Daniel 8. The little horn in Daniel 7 depicts the Antichrist, and the little horn of Daniel 8 depicts Antiochus Epiphanes. They are very different in their origin where they come from. The little horn of Daniel 7 arises out of the fourth kingdom, which is Rome. So his source of origination is Rome. There are the four kingdoms. The fourth kingdom has ten horns. The An eleventh horn comes up within those ten horns. He will subdue three of them, and he will become the leader of that ten nation, actually with his nation, an eleven nation confederacy. That is the origin of the little horn in Daniel 7. But if you look at Daniel chapter 8, the little horn that arises there comes up from the second of two kingdoms. Daniel 8, Daniel has a vision of a ram and a goat. The ram represents the Medo-Persian Empire. The goat represents Greece. And it is out of the goat the second part, that you have the rise of the, uh, of the little horn there, which is Antiochus Epiphany. So he is going to come, come, into, uh, come into existence out of Greece. Now, the thing that, I, that struck me as really odd is that in reading one of the better books on, on the Assyrian Antichrist is that he has to postulate a not only a revived Roman Empire, but a revived Greek Empire in order for the Antichrist to come out because he's going to go to the end of this chapter and the last part of it's going to be prophetic. And so just like this little horn comes out of, out of Greece, so the little horn, the Assyrian, the Assyrian Antichrist has to come out of Greece. Now I don't, we'll, we'll look at a map the next time, but you have to remember that the Roman Empire covered key areas in the Middle East, Turkey, Syria. Uh, during part of the Roman Empire, they clearly had control of territory in northern Iraq, Kurdistan, up in that area, down through uh, Lebanon, <coughs> Israel, Egypt, areas like that were clearly within the Roman Empire. And so the view that they have is that uh, the five, t- in the, going back to Daniel's statue of the, the, the ten toes, that five were from the west, five were from the east, and so you're going to take Turkey and Syria and Lebanon and Egypt and Iraq, and these are going to be, you know, the five nations coming out of the <clears throat> coming out of the uh, eastern part of the old Roman Empire, and of course that covered the area that was old Assyria, and so that's where the the Assyrian Antichrist is going to come from. I don't buy it. Bad exegesis. Okay. Um, the little horn of Daniel 7 is the 11th horn, which rips out three of the original ten horns. It's the 11th horn that rips out three of the original ten horns in Daniel 7, verse 8, and Daniel 7:25. whereas the, uh, 
little horn in Daniel 8 is actually the fifth horn that comes out of four earlier horns as mentioned in Daniel uh, Daniel chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. This male goat is going to have uh, one large horn. That's actually uh, Alexander the Great. It's broken off. That's the early death of Alexander the Great. In place of it, four notable ones come up. That's the split of the Roman, uh, of the uh, Greek Empire into four kingdoms, um, Cassandra, Lysimachus, Seleucus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. And that after that, in verse 9, and out of one of the, them, one of those four, came a little horn which grew exceedingly. So the little horn that's mentioned there is totally different in its origin from the little horn in Daniel chapter uh, 7. And then a third contrast is that the little horn of Daniel 7 will persecute Israel for three and a half years, according to Daniel 7.25. That's the last half of the tribulation period. But according to uh, Daniel 8.13 through 14, the little horn in Daniel 8 will persecute Israel for 2,300 days, which is something like uh, part of seven, six to seven years. So it's a completely different uh, period of time than you have in Daniel chapter 7. So that shows that they're, they're very different. They are not the same thing, even though they are both depicted by a little horn. Now, in this next chart... I want to show a description and contrast of the little horns and what they do in Daniel uh, chapter 7 and 8. So we'll contrast the uh, Antichrist in Daniel 7 and Antiochus Epiphanes in Daniel 8 again. In Daniel 7, the Antichrist is pictured as arrogant. He's violent. He conquers three of the ten previous uh, kings which is described as ripping them out. So it's an extremely violent image that is presented there. Uh, <clears throat> in Daniel 8.24, that, uh, it says that Antiochus Epiphanes it gets his power from somewhere else. It's not his own. We know that would be a demonic power. So he's either empowered by Satan or a demon. I just put Satan in there for uh, just to represent his his kingdom, his power. So he is very destructive, according to Daniel 8:24. See, there are similarities between the two because the um, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes is a picture or a type. He foreshadows what the Antichrist is going to be like. The way he ran his kingdom is how the Antichrist will run his kingdom. His, his, the way he runs uh, the government, his personality, his hostility to Israel, all depicts the characteristics of the future, uh, the future, future Antichrist. The Antichrist is said to be man-centered. He has the eyes of a man in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8. He thinks, according to pure human viewpoint, rejecting what the Bible says completely and rejecting God. In Daniel 8, 23 to 25, the, excuse me, the Antiochus Epiphanes is pictured as insolent. He's deceitful towards people. He says one thing. He's very crafty. He is very sly in the way he conducts uh, diplomacy. He says one thing and does something else. Now, we can think of a lot of politicians who are that way. Uh, there are numerous men in history who have uh, been in positions. If they're in elected positions, we can think of so many people, whether they're congressmen or senators or, or presidents, who have... Uh, 
campaigned on one set of promises and then done just the opposite once they got elected, including our, our present president. I thought, heard somebody yesterday make a good point. They went through all these promises that President Obama had made that he would not raise taxes in any way, shape, or form on the American people. Therefore, in order to uh, help him keep his campaign promises, we need to make sure that we do not pass this cap-and-trade legislation, and we need to make sure we don't pass the health care bill, because then that's going to keep, help him keep his promises to not raise taxes. I thought that was a nice way of putting it. So let's all support our president and, you know, wipe out all this crazy legislation. Um, The Antichrist is incredibly blasphemous. He is hostile and arrogant toward God. So that's very similar to the uh, Antiochus Epiphanes who said in Daniel 8.25 to exalt himself over the prince of princes. Now that is a reference to the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He is going to, he takes it upon himself. He, he, and the God of Israel, and he's going to set himself up to be worshiped, uh, by the act known as the abomination of desolation when he set up an idol of himself in the Holy of Holies in the temple. He is exalting himself over God. And that is, was fulfilled historically. The, uh, Antichrist, is depicted as increasing blasphemy in the face of divine judgment. Daniel 7:11. we have the, his actions at the same time that God is coming together, the Ancient of Days is coming together uh, in the heavens, depicted in verses uh, uh, 9 and 10. Uh, the Antichrist, I mean, uh, God is coming together to execute judgment on the earth, and at the same time, verse 11 says that the Antichrist is uh, sounding off with pompous words, and he he gets more and more blasphemous, more and more arrogant toward God, the closer judgment comes. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was very much the same way. In fact, it was so horrendous that at the end of Daniel 8, Daniel is so sickened by what he has seen that he passes out and he is uh, just sick for days because of what he has seen. Verse 28 of Daniel 7 says, This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, my countenance changed, and I kept the matter in my heart. He is uh, very disturbed by all that he has seen. The Antichrist is going to have fame, celebrity, and power uh, beyond all others. He is going to be exalted by all human beings, uh, far beyond anything else, when we watch all of the silliness that goes on when various celebrities die, uh, we're seeing a lot of it right now. When we see that and we see the adulation in worship, uh, someone even told me that they heard Michael Jackson referred to the other day as a god. And so we just see where our culture puts its emphasis. But the Antichrist is literally going to be worshipped by God, and when people take the oath, uh, to receive the mark of the beast, then they will uh, be taking an oath and literally, truly worshiping him at, as God at that uh, at that time. Under Antiochus Epiphanes, there would be the prediction that he would be incredibly powerful, and there would be tremendous prosperity under his reign. And there was in Syria during uh, the early part of his reign. He was a brilliant leader. He was a brilliant military commander. Uh, what led to his downfall was, of course, his anti-Semitism. 
Uh, in Daniel chapter 7, the Antichrist is depicted as one who would bring war against Israel until the Son of Man would come to establish his own kingdom. That's what ends the Antichrist's reign. But that's not what uh, happens with Antiochus Epiphanes. He's depicted as removing the daily sacrifices. He redefines truth. How postmodern we have today, people who redefine uh, truth, you know, the very famous presidential statement, what is the meaning of is? You know, you're just redefining truth according to some uh, false statement. Now, here's a map that I did put up here just to remind you of the area we're talking about. Uh, <clears throat> this area here is known as the Fertile Crescent. Down here we have the Persian Gulf, this body of water to the lower right. Over here in the lower center is the... Uh, uh, was it the Su up here you have the Suez Canal up here, and this is the Red Sea, and then you have the uh, Gulf of Aqaba going up here. Here's the Sinai Peninsula. And it's this area in purple, Egypt, going across the Sinai up into the area of Israel and what is now modern Jordan. This is the area that at the early stages after the breakup of the Greek Empire of Alexandria that was under the dominant uh, control of the uh, Ptolemies. Then up this green shaded area here that goes up uh, from what is uh, part of modern Lebanon, Syria, across to uh, northern Iraq. This area up through here was under the uh, control of Seleucus, who was one of uh, Alexander's generals and later became the Seleucid Empire. Later in their history, they're going to take away the control of, of this area from the Ptolemies, and there's a back-and-forth tug-of-war all through this area. For a couple of hundred years, there was just there was even more unrest and fighting in the Middle East during that time than there is today. Can you imagine that? And we act like today it's just some, it's all new, and we've got to solve the problem. We're so arrogant. Um, so this is the area that we'll be talking about as we go through this, this section. Daniel 8.1 begins with the statement that it's now in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king. Now, this is the last king of uh, the Babylonian Empire. We've already seen its collapse back in Daniel chapter, uh, <clears throat> Daniel chapter 5, but now in chapter 7 and uh, 8, it's going back earlier the, to, the, to visit these earlier uh, visions that Daniel had. So this is two years after his vision in chapter 7. Two years after that vision, so in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. And the way in which he, he states this shows that he understands that there is a connection between the vision that he sees in Daniel 8 and the vision before. And the connection is that, that the previous chapter gave a broad overview of the four kingdoms, and now in chapter 8 they're going to narrow the focus on this uh, these two kingdoms, the first kingdom, the kingdom of the uh, the Medo-Persian kingdom, and the second kingdom, which is the kingdom of of, of the Seleucid Empire under under the Greeks. And so Daniel eight is going to focus us on these particular examples of the kingdom of man. And because of that, we can do an analysis of these 
chapters and analysis of history and come to understand some of the key characteristics that we find in the kingdom of man. And one of the foremost ones that we see from its its initial uh, appearance back in Genesis chapter 11 in Babylon is that the the king, the state, takes on for itself responsibilities that only God can fulfill. There is always a religious overtone to the claims of the state that they can solve all of man's problems because of their great power and their great ability. This was the hope of Nimrod when he established the kingdom of Babylon uh, initially. And we see that through all of these periods of time, whether you're talking about the Seleucid kings or you're talking about the Caesars in Rome or you're talking about you know, modern kings and empires, that is always the, uh, the threat to political leadership is to think that you can do more than you can and that the state should do more than it's supposed to from the establishment of human government in Genesis chapter 6 all the way through the scriptures the role of human government is simply to restrain evil it is not to promote prosperity only by restraining evil can it allow for an environment of freedom where righteousness can then uh, can then prevail. And so Daniel chapter 8 is going to take our attention to Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes meant, uh, was, was Greek meaning God manifest. He viewed himself as the incarnation of God on the earth, but he got so arrogant people began to laugh at him. Arrogance, you know, pride goes before a fall. We may see that, uh, in our own time before long if we're fortunate. But the people called him Antiochus Epimenes, little play on words. Epimenes meant the crazy one. And so people would call him Antiochus Epimenes behind his back uh, because they knew that anybody who claimed to do all the th- claimed they could do all the things that he claimed he could do was was just divorced from reality. And of course the Antichrist will be divorced from reality. That's his pride, his pompousness, and his uh his arrogance. So we'll see that in the person of Antiochus the uh, Fourth, called Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a master politician. He knew how all the intrigue in court, how to play his generals off against each other. He knew how to uh, appeal to the masses so that he could always have uh, popularity. And eventually, though, it overwhelmed him because no human being has the knowledge, the capability to deal with all of the variables and all the fluctuations that can occur uh, in human history, especially when God is in control and God has a habit of, um, <clears throat> of changing things up so that human leaders can't accomplish the kinds of things that they, uh, that they claim to. But the real source of the downfall for Antiochus was that he established a reign of terror in uh, Israel, from 171 B.C. to 164. So during this period of almost seven years, there's this period where uh, he is making life miserable for the Jews. But there, God will raise up some leaders in the form of the Maccabees who will lead a revolt, and this will eventually establish the Hasmonean uh, kingdom in Israel that will eventually lead to 
uh, setting up the kinds of things that are on the scene when Jesus came uh, during the during the first advent. Well, the first 14 verses of, of Daniel 8 give us the vision. We'll just have enough time. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the uh, <clears throat> on the ram, but so we'll get through that tonight before we get to the uh, come back and look at the goat later. So verse 2, Daniel says, I looked in the vision and it came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel of Susa. Susa is down south in Persia which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Now, nobody's really sure where the Ulai Canal was located. This was one of the various, uh, probably a um, an irrigation canal that had been cut from the uh, Tigris or Euphrates, and that this was the way in which they were watering and providing water for, for the province, for their agriculture. And so this is where Daniel was located. Verse 3, he says, I lifted my gaze and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now, we know from Scripture that horns represent power, represented kingdoms. And so this is a ram that is going to depict a kingdom that is ultimately comprised of two kingdoms. It says that the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other. That indicated that one had more power than the other one. The second one, the longer one, came up last. And so actually this depicts the Persian Empire, which came up after the Median Empire came up, and then the Persian Empire came to dominate uh, the Median the Medo-Persian Empire. This is identified in 820, which states that the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. And so Persia had great expansion. In verse 4, Daniel said, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beasts could stand before him. And the Persians... Uh, remember, they were also depicted by that uh, lopsided bear, and just they were just a powerhouse militarily as they uh, headed south and they conquered the area around Palestine, Israel, uh, Jordan, that area. They headed uh, <clears throat> uh, west into Turkey, conquered the Lydian Empire, and northward and dominating over the uh, Median Empire and the, and the uh, uh, Babylonian Empire. Uh, nor the beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue him, to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. Verse 5, Daniel says, While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth. This depicts the Greek empire under Alexander the Great, coming from the west, from Greece, coming across uh, with the battles at Isis and Granicus, and uh, defeating the armies of the Persians uh, in, a, in a speed. That's why it says coming fast over the surface of the earth without touching the ground indicates speed. And the goat had a conspicuous horn, one horn, between his eyes, depicting the uh, greatness of Alexander the Great and his conquest of the world in uh, about 11 years. Daniel 8.21 identifies this. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, Alexander. Back to verse 6. And he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns 
and the ram had no strength to withstand him, the defeat of the uh, Medo-Persian Empire. So he hurled him to the ground, trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the Lord's horn was broken. Uh, Alexander died at an early age. He uh, died young. He was just over 30, and so the kingdom then was split uh, between his generals, his four, uh, his four generals. And that's depicted by the four conspicuous horns that come up toward the four winds of heaven, the four directions of that empire. In verse 9, and one of them came, and out of one of them, so out of one of those horns, this is going to be reference to Antiochus Epiphanes, out of one of the horns, the Seleucus horn, out of one of those horns came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land, toward the east, uh, would be as his original territory was in the area of Syria, but he gained control back towards Babylon, and the beautiful land is a reference, uh, the reference toward Israel. And in verse 10, and it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. Now this is a really interesting verse because usually the phrase host of heaven refers to angels. I think it does here and it shows the interplay between human history and the angelic conflict. So I'm going to stop there tonight and then next time after I get back from, from vacation, then we will uh, look at this a little bit and the role of the angelic conflict uh, behind history. So let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight. That As we look at events in history, we see patterns, we see principles that relate to events today. And, Father, we see that you depicted certain things, you chose certain events in the ancient world in order to de- depict what would transpire at the end times? Also to teach through example key principles related to leadership, key principles related to the role of government and the usurpation of power uh, by government in order to assert itself as, a, as divinity. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study because we know that Jesus Christ controls history. He died on the cross for our sins to give us salvation, and he will return in the future as the Son of Man in order to establish his kingdom, and that we have our salvation simply by believing in him, that he is the one who died for us. Now, Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we've studied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.